Welcome to our continued look at the race for the White House with Real Clear Politics podcast in the arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simondick. In the final 34 days of the election, our reporters and editors are stepping back each Thursday to dissect election developments and take a closer look at 2016 battlegrounds. In our podcast this week, we focused on millennial voters as a key demographic for the two major party nominees. We explore how young people who overwhelmingly supported Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 and favored Bernie Sanders in the primaries are greeting their presidential choices in these final weeks. Real Clear's polling analyst David Byler interviewed Robert Jones, founding CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute, about voter trends, especially related to faith and religion. Real Clear's managing editor Emily Gooden gathered some interesting insights from surrogates for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the spin room following Tuesday night's vice presidential debate between Republican Governor Mike Pence and Democratic Senator Tim Kaine. In this week's Battlegrounds segment, Real Clear's congressional correspondent James Arkin asked Andrew Bowman, Democratic pollster and senior vice president of Global Strategy Group, to explain the election outlook among younger voters as November 8th approaches. We welcome your feedback at realclearpolitics.com. First up, you'll hear from David Byler, who interviews Robert Jones about his new book, The End of White Christian America. So over the past couple election cycles, we've heard a lot about changing demographics, how President Obama built a winning coalition in part on historic levels of support from African-Americans and a growing Hispanic slash Latino slash Latina population. But that's not the only important change happening in the country's demographic. We're also seeing changes in religion, how people self-identify, how they think about their faith, and what that means for our politics. All of these things are changing rapidly. And if you dig deep into those numbers, they matter quite a lot for our politics and for American society in general. So we have a great guest to talk about this uh, with us this week. We have Dr. Robert Jones. Dr. Jones is the founding CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute. They're nonpartisan and they do a lot of amazing research and polling on religion and politics in America, among other topics. Dr. Jones recently authored a book called The End of White Christian America, and PRRI also recently published a report called Exodus, which is about young people who no longer affiliate themselves with any church or formal religious institution. So we have a lot of interesting stuff to cover, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so. First question, I really enjoyed the book when I read well, it, you. and I think it'd be good for our listeners to kind of get a bird's eye view of what the argument is. And uh, first off, just sort of what you mean by white Christian America? Is that just a group of people? Is that have sort of political dimensions? What, what exactly do you mean by that? Uh, and when you talk about the end of it, there are you know specific trends that you point out in the book. So taking apart the general thrust of the book, and any implications you think that has for sort of our politics or our public policy broadly. And it's kind of a broad question, but my goal is just to let you have at it in whatever right, way you see fit. Right. Well, I think beginning with what I mean by white Christian America is really an important place to start. So let's start there. Uh, so the book is called The End of White Christian America, a provocative title. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, at the end of the day, it really is a data-driven book. Uh, and what I mean by uh, white Christian America is not, I don't mean the end of all white Christians, I don't mean the end of all white Christian churches, but what I do mean is that the country has really come to the end of an era. 
and it was the end of an era dominated by the institutions and kind of cultural clout built by white, particularly Protestants in this country. Uh, one of the, my favorite lines from a historian when I was doing research for the book uh, put it like really simply, he said, look, in the middle of the 20th century, if you were in charge of something big and important, whether it was business or government, chances are you were white, you were Protestant, and you were male. Right? And, and I think that largely held true, really, all the way you know, up through the sort of, sort of second, third quarter of the 20, uh, 20th century, but it's not true today. Uh, and, and I think what the book is trying to do is to kind of wrap uh, you know, my mind and kind of help people wrap their minds around uh, what it means for the end of this era. So I, be, I begin the book with a, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, but not, not completely tongue-in-cheek, obituary for white Christian America, and I end the book with a eulogy, trying to reflect on kind of where we go uh, from here as a country. Uh, but just to give you a couple of numbers, there is some data behind this assertion, yeah. right, uh, that, that we have come to the end of this era. Uh, and in fact, um, what's interesting about it, you know, we're, we're on the eve of a new election, uh, and what's interesting about it is if you just look back two election cycles ago to 2008, when Barack Obama was first running for president, you can really see uh, the end of this era um, that has really occurred. We've passed this tipping point just during his presidency. So 2008, uh, 54% of the country identified as white and Christian. So when Barack Obama was running the first time, uh, the country was a majority white Christian country. Uh, today, that number is 43%. It's uh, a significant uh, and, decline. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's about a percentage point a year, a little more actually than uh, um, over the last eight years. Um, and so we've really crossed the threshold from being a majority, really solidly majority white Christian country uh, in 2008 uh, to being a decidedly minority white Christian country uh, today. And I think it's that uh, tipping point, that threshold uh, that I was trying to draw attention to in the book because I, I think we have in many ways crossed this very significant threshold in terms of the identity of the country without a lot of people paying attention to it. So one of the things the book was trying to do is to shine a light uh, on it because I think it explains a lot of the dynamics that we're seeing uh, in the country and, in, and even in this election cycle. One thing that I was thinking about when I was reading this book, because the book came out, you can correct me if I'm wrong, in 2015, sort of right before the whole Trump saga began, right? Or well, the, the, I turned, I closed the text. I had to, you okay. know, books have these long tails, right? So I had to submit the text okay. to the book before Trump really had ascended. Right. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I can say that the term, you know, Donald Trump's name does not appear anywhere in the right. book. Uh, and But yet, you know, I think there were some uh, hints uh, that it helped explain, I think, some of his rise in the book. Yeah, and that's actually what I wanted to ask you about next, because yeah. I was reading through your book and I was thinking about um, the different strategies the different primary candidates might have taken to try to win the general election, yeah. especially on the Republican side. Um, you know, you think about what a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio or a, somebody who had read your book might have done. They might have tried to break off a piece of the Obama coalition, sort of you know, reckon with the reality that uh, white Christian America is sort of a minority now where it used to be a majority. And it seems like Trump isn't taking that strategy. And yet he's... <laughs> yeah, not so much. Yeah, yeah, right? Um, and yet uh -huh. he's, uh, he's been able to, at times, keep it close or even barely inch ahead in the poll. So I'm kind of interested in how you sort of square that circle, so to speak, where uh, Donald Trump seems to be, he's losing currently, but he seems to be doing reasonably well despite running a strategy that 
by the numbers seems outmoded. So I'm a little out on the limb here because in, in the book, I, I say that Mitt Romney's campaign was the last one where what I call a white Christian strategy was really viable. I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting to note that Mitt Romney really did hit all of his marks. I mean, he evangelicals, which were kind of a worry for him, white evangelicals, a little worry for him early in the campaign, seemed to be maybe a little worried about his Mormon faith and some tensions between evangelicals and Mormons. Uh, but, you know, once he got the nomination, they pretty much fell in line. They turned out at rates comparable to what they to where they were with George W. Bush. They voted, about 8 in 10 of them voted for him, which is historically right. where they were. Strong support for him. And so he really did hit all these marks. And I think that's one of the reasons why he himself was so mystified when he lost the election. And up until, you know, yeah. the 11th hour was insisting, actually, that he was still going to win Ohio. Um, and But, you know, what happened there is that, uh, you know, some analysis we did, the AP did after the election, it turns out that, you know, if he had had the same electorate that George W. Bush did, uh, he would have won. Mm -hmm. uh, but what had happened is the electorate had changed just enough between 2004, uh, for between 2000 and uh, 2008, uh, that he uh, just didn't have enough uh, white Christian votes to stack up uh, to win. So I'm, I'm on record saying, you know, the strategy of stacking up super majorities of white Christian voters to compensate for these other growing demographics is, um, you know, destined to fail. Um, but I think we're going to have a real test case on our hands this election right. cycle because um, even, you know, even the Republican Party, I think, recognized this. You know, they put out this autopsy, you know, got dubbed the autopsy mm -hmm. report in 2013 after Romney's loss where they themselves concluded, we have to sort of get behind immigration reform, we have to sort of turn the volume down on gay marriage uh, rhetoric, you know, and we have to broaden the tent um, beyond this base, um, you know, and it really doesn't seem like Donald Trump got that memo. One other interesting sort of trend that I saw, well, there's a lot of interesting trends in the book, but um, one of them that I saw, if we kind of zoom in a little bit and talk about policy as well as politics, um, is the real turnaround when it came to the issue of marriage quality. Yeah. So uh, it seems like in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, opposition to same-sex marriage was the more popular position. It was something that George Bush successfully ran on in 2004. But it seems like within the span of sort of a decade, opinions on that changed and they changed really rapidly. Um, and it doesn't seem to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it's not necessarily a grudging change. It's a sort of widely celebrated change. Um, so I guess I'd have two questions. First, what do you think gave rise to that change happening and it happening that quickly? And the second would be a broader question sort of about the religious right in general. Um, now that they have to sort of deal with potentially lesser numbers, um, they have to deal with less influence among the Republican Party because, as we saw in the 2016 uh, primary, social conservatives sort of took a back seat to cultural conservatives uh, in many cases. So, uh, yeah, that change in spe uh, specifically, why and how that happened, and also now that the religious right is sort of lost on one of their signature issues, where do they go from here? Yeah. Well, it is important to note that the issue of opposing gay rights was front and center for the conservative Christian movement from day one. I mean, mm -hmm. all the way back to the 70s, uh, you know, they were opposing like local ordinances uh, on city councils. I mean, this was you know really important. And then it got to, uh, I think it's high point, as you said, in 2004 with this raft of about a dozen uh, constitutional bans uh, at the state level on um, on marriage equality. Uh, and, you know, but what's interesting is that, uh, as you say, that 
things really did move. And you know, and if I if I had like sort of one chart I could sort of put in front of everybody, mm-hmm. I would say that I would put that demographic change that we talked about earlier, yeah. right? The kind of decline of white Christians uh, in the electorate uh, and in the general population on the one hand, and I would plot right up against it the shifting views on same-sex marriage. So, you know, if, if and you're right, if you look back in the 80s, like Jerry Falwell, the moral people dubbed themselves the moral majority. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a sense in which, on some issues at least, they were right about that, right? They were in the majority on an issue like gay rights. Most of the country opposed uh, gay rights or, or in, and in particular, opposed gay marriage. Uh, but, you know, and, and even when Barack Obama took office in 2008, only four in 10 Americans supported mm-hmm. uh, same sex marriage in 2008. That number today is six in 10. Yeah. Right, so it's moved 20 percentage points just again during Barack Obama's uh, period. But but I want to highlight that because you know if you are a conservative white Christian in the country, and you have uh, sort of you know uh, just lived through the first African American president, uh, the, and you see this massive sea change in opinion on uh, marriage equality, and at the same time you see your own numbers dwindling uh, from majority to minority status. That's a shocking amount of change uh, in less than a decade, yeah. and I think that energy is some of what we're seeing, you know, in the in the election cycle um, that, that Donald Trump has been able to tap, um, actually. Uh, and so, even though he's not talking about gay marriage specifically, what he's tapped is this sense of dislocation uh, and uh, and decline, really, and fears about decline that many conservative, um, you know, Christians are after. I mean, I think the biggest thing contributed to that change is um, is the coming of age of a very large generation of millennials, uh, more you know, three quarters of whom support you know, or more, depending on the poll you're looking at, support marriage equality. So as they've come into the electorate, into the adult population, uh, they really have shifted uh, you know the ground here. Uh, but they've shifted it in a way that has had a ripple effect up the generational chain. So even if we look at seniors. 10 years ago and today, even seniors are changing their mind uh, about the issue. And they're changing their mind at about the same rates as younger Americans are. It's just that younger Americans start from a much higher level of support uh, than, than seniors did to begin with. So it really is a sort of moving wave all the way up the generational chain on this issue. Um, and some of the charts, what I noticed is that uh, you have high level of white Protestant support for Republican candidates back a number of election cycles, mm-hmm. but if you look at the religious breakdown of uh, sort of the left and of Democratic candidates and of the Obama coalition, it's not wholly secular. There are a number of uh, white Protestants, there's a number of uh, white Catholics, there's also a large chunk, it seems, of African American Protestants, Hispanic Catholics, Hispanic Protestants, more groups, other religions as well, and yet it doesn't seem like uh, religion and politics interact in the same way on the right as they do on the left. So I'm interested in your thoughts about sort of how that plays out on the left in terms of the interaction between faith and politics. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. I mean, what's interesting is if you look back across, say, the last four presidential election cycles, so back a couple of decades, um, what we see is a very uh, stable pattern, typically, where you had, basically, if you're white and Christian, you tend to lean toward Republican candidates in any presidential election cycle. Uh, If you're non-white and Christian, you tend to lead uh, toward Democratic candidates. Also, if you're Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, you tend to lead toward Democratic candidates. And then the other big group that's growing, if you are religiously unaffiliated, claiming no religious affiliation, you tend to lean toward Democratic candidates. So what it means is that over time, we've just seen this very stable 
shift between this kind of homogeneous group on one, supporting uh, Republican candidates, you know, white Christians on the one hand, and then this very diverse group on the other supporting Democratic candidates. And I think that's part of the explanation, right? Mm-hmm. So that one of the reasons why I think this very evangelical, Protestant, and Christian messaging has taken hold in the Republican Party the way it has is because they have a constituency that's very homogeneous, mm-hmm. right? So when you're thinking about political communication and persuasion and all that stuff, uh, it becomes much easier if you've got a single target audience uh, than if you have this very diverse audience you're trying to, to talk to. And so it also means that from the other side, that religious leaders had an easier time mobilizing uh, constituency because they could go to an evangelical church and count on the fact that about 8 in 10 of the people in the pews were probably supporting Republican candidates. So it became easier to mobilize uh, that way as well. So I think it's one of the reasons why religion has been so much more visible on the Republican side of politics. It's just because you have this kind of homogeneity that allows it to kind of come together in a more easy and a kind of more powerful way. Um, on the left or on, on Democratic politics, you know, you have this challenge where there's no group that really makes up a majority on that side. So if, for example, Hillary Clinton or any other Democratic candidate decided she was going to make a big speech and talk about her Methodist faith, which she can do, I've heard her do it, you know, mm-hmm. in a room, um, you know, that would resonate with the mainline Protestants in the room. It might bleed over a little bit to the evangelical Protestants in the room, but it might fall a little flat among the Catholics. It might fall a little flat among the Jews. It might fl- fall a little flat among the unaffiliated and the Buddhists and the Muslims. So it, it, it's, um, it becomes, I think, less of a vehicle for uh, Democratic candidates uh, are less likely or powerful vehicle for Democratic candidates than it does for Republicans. So for just practical reasons, I think we're seeing it less. Um, but the, theologically, one other thing I would say is that in, in more kind of progressive religious groups, religion itself functions differently for them. So uh, what I would, so like for evangelicals, it's not, uh, when we do surveys, uh, we typically see them saying religion is the most important thing in my life, period. Uh, but but even for kind of people who are regularly in the pews that are more liberal, they tend to say religion is important to my life, but it's one among many things important to my life. So it becomes kind of one integrated with a bunch of other things rather than the thing around which everything else is organized. And and I think that difference is there as well. So it, even if they could, uh, a Democratic candidate can figure out a way to appeal in strong religious terms that would resonate across, it's still probably not the best strategy for connecting with those voters because it's only one aspect of what they're bringing, I think, to their uh, voting decisions in, in a way that it's just not on, on, the, uh, on the Republican side. That's really interesting. One thing that I also wanted to talk about uh, was that PRI recently re- uh, released a report called Exodus. Um, and it's basically about young Americans sort of leaving their childhood faith and becoming unaffiliated with maybe any religious institution. Um, And I think one thing that would be helpful for our listeners is sort of to get the broad strokes of it sort of in the same way that we did with the end of white Christian America. So first off, what would the trend be? And then underneath the trend, uh, how does this break down along demographic lines? Um, How do people look like they'll ever Mm reaffiliate? Why are they disaffiliating in the purpose, or sorry, why are they disaffiliating in the first place? Is there any you know, variation along denominational or theological lines? And once we have kind of a, a broad sketch of what the 
uh, exodus trend looks like. It would be interesting to know your thoughts on how uh, religiously unaffiliated voters might affect our politics in this yeah. cycle and maybe a few more to come. Right. So you've got two provocative titles, uh, The End of White Christian America yeah. and Exodus. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, why why uh, Americans are leaving church and why they're unlikely uh, to return. Uh, not all of our reports, I should say, have such provocative titles, but these two I think warranted it really. Um, mm -hmm. The trends are really stark. Um, I mean, even for you know someone like me who stares at this religion data all the time, when I see the trend lines that we're looking at now, I mean, they really uh, are something worth paying attention to uh, and, and fairly unprecedented. Uh, just to give you, um, you know, a, a slice, I'll give you some of the specific data. Uh, so it actually is the flip side of the story I'm telling in my book, right? So the yeah. decline of white Christian America on the one hand, well, where are they going? Well, they've got to go somewhere. Uh, and the truth is most of them are going into nothing. Uh, they're going into this big nothing in particular category. Uh, sometimes called the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, not the N-U-N-S's. Right. Uh, but but, uh, but there's, uh, what we're finding today is that a, a quarter of Americans, and this is the highest number we've, we've had since we've been asking this question, a quarter of Americans say that they claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. Uh, to put that in perspective, as recently as the 1990s, uh, mid-1990s, that number was 6%. Uh, so it's quadrupled just since the 1990s. Uh, and if you look at younger people, you'll see where this trend is coming from. Uh, it's nearly 4 in 10. 39% of young people claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. Now, I want to be clear about that. That doesn't just mean they're not saying they go to a church or synagogue um, or to the mosque. Uh, but they're saying not only do they not go, but they're not even going to claim the label, right? So if you say, what is your religion? Are you Protestant? Are you Catholic? Are you Jewish? Uh, they say nothing uh, to that question. And that's, that's, a, um, that's a large number. It's, a, again, the largest number that we've that we've seen. So um, that's kind of a, uh, you know, that coupled with uh, de like demographic changes due to immigration and lower birth rates among whites is, those are the two engines really that are causing the real transformation of the religious landscape that we're seeing. Um, you know, I, I would say though that the, that the group of religiously unaffiliated Americans is, uh, depending on your perspective, um, you know, it's either a great pent-up potential or a ticking time bomb uh, at the ballot box because uh, what we've seen is that even though this number has reached now a quarter of the, ele of the general population, uh, it has never represented more than 12% of voters, right? So, uh, and, and to put that in perspective, you go back to 2012, the last presidential election cycle, um, the, the religiously unaffiliated Americans at that time made up 20% of the population, but they only made up 12% of voters because they turned out at lower rates and are registered at lower rates uh, than other Americans. Uh, and just as a comparison, the other group that also made up 20% of Americans in 2012 were white evangelical Protestants, but because they turn out, they made up 26% of voters. Mm -hmm. So even though they were exactly the same number in the general population, white evangelicals had twice the impact at the ballot box that religiously unaffiliated Americans do. Uh, now, you know, we may see that begin to change because this group is now not all in their 20s. They're beginning to be in their 30s. Uh, and typically, voter registration and turnout rates go up uh, when people reach their, reach their 30s. So we'll see. But, you know, ever since we have never seen them again, you know, 2012, uh, you, can, you can just kind of march it back, 2012, 2008, never more than 12% of, of voters. Um, but if they got registered and got organized, um, it could be a constituency that would really change the electorate. Imagine that uh, instead of doing this right now, you're doing this, let's say, 40 years ago, and it's the 1970s instead, and you have, uh, you know, 
polling organization, research organization that's dedicated to studying religion. And then, you know, sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, you uh, go to, into a coma or you leave for Barbados <laughs> or something like that. Uh -huh. And you don't see any information on this stuff for another 40 years until you wake up or come back or what have you. And it's, it's 2016 and you are looking at the data again. Um, the question would be, what things would surprise you? What would you have expected? What wouldn't you have expected? Um, what's the sort of difference there? And then the second part of the question is kind of the flip side of it. So suppose, you know, tomorrow you win the lottery and you buy some island in the Pacific and you tune out from uh, all things political and religious in terms of societal mm -hmm. trends for a good 30 years. Uh, and we touched on this a little bit in our last question, but I'm interested in what do you think that landscape might look like? It's, it's hard to project, but any yeah. thoughts you have sort of on these trends coming to now and the yeah. trends going forward, I think would be interesting. All right, so nice, easy softball question. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Sorry about that. Yeah, no, no, so it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think if, especially if I'm, plant, if I'm planted in the 70s, right, that's the, and, and I'm looking at kind of religion and politics, I mean, this is really the rise of the Christian right in the 70s. So that's what I would be looking at uh, when I sort of took my long-term vacation. Um, and, and, you, and that was also the time that the more liberal Protestant churches were really struggling. Um, so, you know, what I would think, what I would have thought if I had taken the snapshot then is that evangelical churches would be on the rise, the kind of more liberal churches would be on the wane, uh, and, I, and I wouldn't really be seeing anything about the unaffiliated yet. So I would be completely, you know, so when I came back, I think what would be striking to me is the fact that evangelicals, the evangelical world has crested and itself is experiencing decline over the last decade. Uh, that the mainline world is kind of right at the ship after a few decades of decline. Um, and, but what would be, what would, I would have had no way of seeing is this rise of the religiously unaffiliated, uh, especially if you're talking about a quarter of the country claiming no religious affiliation, four in ten young people. That would have been astonishing, I think, to come back. Uh, one we haven't talked about, um, but I think it fits into here, is um, the complete transformation of the Catholic Church. Uh, so in the 70s, um, the Catholic Church is about a quarter of the U.S. population. Um, you know, we're coming off of Kennedy's election in the 60s. Uh, and had firmly managed to kind of get into the mainstream American life. Uh, but it was almost entirely white. Um, and so what has happened is that you know, even as late as the 90s, the Catholic Church, the ratio of white to non-white Catholics was about 10 to 1 as late as the 90s. Today, we're almost at parity. Um, so in terms of white and non-white Catholics. And so the, the percentages slipped only slightly, but the only reason the percentages slipped only slightly is because uh, the loss of white Catholics has been, uh, they have been offset by the influx of Latino uh, and Asian Pacific Islander Catholics uh, coming into the country. Uh, and, and it's been that churn that has really changed the face of, of the Catholic Church. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in some ways, politically speaking now, you can actually look, and it, it politically, it actually looks like two Catholic churches. A white Catholic church that leans toward Republican candidates and a Latino Catholic Church, Latino-dominated Catholic Church that leans heavily toward uh, Democratic uh, candidates. So that's a dynamic. Also, wouldn't really have, have yeah. seen, have you know, been able to foresee. Um, looking ahead, um, you know, I guess the question is, where do these trends level out? Um, because they are accelerating at, you know, uh, you know. So again, it's like '90s, and you see these little upticks. 
But really, it's the last decade, 10 to 12 years, that you see this acceleration of people disaffiliating, and particularly white uh, Christians disaffiliating uh, from religion. Um, and, you know, when, I guess, you know, what they're, what they're telling us is they're leaving because they no longer um, believe the things that the church is teaching. It's about belief. Um, and and uh, a lot of that's about science, conflicts with science and religion. It's also about gay and lesbian issues, though, big conflicts about uh, what at least conservative churches are teaching um, about that. So the question is, um, you know, uh, if it's gone, if it's quadrupled since the 1990s and we're at 25 percent, where, where does it start leveling out? I'm not sure we know the answer because right now it's still every year we're ticking up another percentage point um, or two. We certainly haven't seen uh, the the uh, plateau yet. Um, so I think that's where I would, you know, I would anticipate kind of waking up and seeing. But, but what, we'll, what we'll certainly be looking at is a country that looks something like only about a third white and Christian, probably about that many religiously unaffiliated, uh, you know, Americans or more, uh, and then a big swath of uh, eth- uh, kind of ethnic uh, minorities, well, what we call ethnic minorities now, but they won't be ethnic minorities then. Mm-hmm. Um, so Latino, African American, Asian Pacific Islander, um, you know, uh, Christians and those following other um, uh, religions in the country, making up a much larger swath. Um, and, and also by that time, uh, if current trends continue, the Catholic Church will be basically a Latino uh, uh, Catholic Church in the country with whites very much in the minority. Wow. Really interesting stuff. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. That's, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. That's about all I had, so Great. thanks. Next, here's Emily Gooden who takes listeners inside the spin room in the wake of the first and only vice presidential debate before Election Day. We're coming to you from the spin room of the vice presidential debate at Longwood University. It's called a spin room because surrogates from both campaigns are here to argue to the assembled journalists on why their candidate did best. Between the mini surrogates and the mobs of reporters from around the world surrounding them, You'll hear arguments from the Trump campaign that Governor Pence won because Senator Kane made too many interruptions during their debate. And you'll hear from the Clinton camp that Governor Pence didn't defend Donald Trump enough. We begin with Clinton Press Secretary Brian Fallon. It seemed to me that Mr. Pence wasn't really defending Mr. Trump. No, he took a pass um, on issue after issue. Um, He even at one point tried to dismiss it and move past it, glide past it by referring to Donald Trump's comments, calling Mexicans rapists, that Mexican thing. Uh, He was not interested in engaging or defending Donald Trump on some of his most outrageous comments, was not interested in explaining some of the positions he's taken, tried to glide past Donald Trump's plan to deport uh, the millions of undocumented immigrants in this country, was not interested in defending his decision to avoid seeking to pay taxes for potentially as many as 18 years. I think Mike Pence was auditioning for 2020 tonight. That's what this was about. His foil tonight, I think in Mike Pence's mind, his foil tonight was not Tim Kaine. It was his own running mate, Donald Trump. And I think he was trying to position himself to those Republicans that have had qualms about Donald Trump all along to see what they've been missing and what they could have with Mike Pence in the future. How has this changed the campaign going forward? coming out of this? What's different tomorrow? Well, the reality was that there was no way for Mike Pence, no matter what type of performance he turned in tonight, to resolve what is ailing the Trump campaign, which is the man at the top of the ticket lacking the temperament to be president of the United States. And so uh, I think that uh, at the end of the day, what was more notable today was that uh, almost to the point of disloyalty, I thought 
uh, that uh, Mike Pence failed in the job of defending his running mate, taking a pass on most of the controversial comments that he was confronted with by Tim Kaine. I thought Tim Kaine did a great job of passionately making the case for why Donald Trump is uniquely unqualified to be president of the United States, and Mike Pence didn't have an answer. I mean, the choice for Mike Pence was really difficult going into tonight because he had two choices. Number one, walk out on a limb with Donald Trump on some of these more outrageous statements he's made, or sort of leave him out on the limb by himself. I think he took the second choice. And what did you guys learn from this debate to help you prepare for the next one in terms of what kind of attacks you might see from Donald Trump in the next debate? I think that, if anything, uh, Donald Trump's job in the next debate is going to be even harder because Mike Pence has shown Republicans what um, they do not have in Donald Trump in the sense that this is somebody that's erratic, combative, uh, easily provoked, and uh, I think that's only going to be more magnified by the fact that Mike Pence came in with a clear uh, game plan of trying to seem reasonable and uh, avoid defending Trump at all costs while not being trying to avoid being noticeable in not defending him. Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway criticized Senator Kane for his interruptions during the debate. And then he really, uh, I think, really kept his cool in a night when King Kane constantly interrupting Governor Pence, constantly interrupting the, the female moderator. I, I think the Clinton campaign will really rue the terms they've been using this past week, like interruption, sexist, unhinged. I was quite remarkable to have the first Asian American uh, female moderator historic night and we hardly got to hear from her because Tim Kaine couldn't stop interrupting her. But the Clinton campaign says that Governor Pence didn't defend Donald Trump. Do you agree? He's on his ticket, so he agrees with him. No, I don't agree with that, but I, I can understand why if this disastrous debate performance, why that would be their major talking point. Uh, he was asked many times, and I think that the best response Governor Pence gave to the just the barrage of insults that Tim Kaine came spilling out of his mouth, even though it had bear, bore no relationship whatsoever to the questions being asked by the female moderator, I thought Governor Pence gave the perfect answer, which was, look, your running mate, Hillary Clinton, went and insulted tens of millions of Americans by calling them all a basket of deplorables and, in fact, irredeemable at that. You add those tens of millions to the other, what, 10 million or so of the Sanders supporters that she lobbed onto that by saying they're basement dwellers and they've got this ridiculous idealist fantasy of free college that he's promising them. So it's very clear that she has disdain for millions of Americans. Kellyanne, did this debate go according to plan? Were you expecting as many interruptions tonight from Senator Kane? No, I was quite surprised that Senator Tim Kane, who I'm told has a Harvard Law degree and obviously has been um, a government in government his entire adult career, it seems practically. Uh, I'm surprised that he wasn't more prepared for the format, that he didn't understand when you answer a question, you give, you know, I learned it in kindergarten, you give the other person time to answer also. And uh, it really did not make for very good TV. I can't imagine over the last day, you know, it's a good quiz to ask, who has hurt Hillary Clinton more in the last day with their messaging? A, her husband, Bill Clinton, B, her running mate, Tim Kaine, or C, both of the above? I'd go for C. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota was on hand to defend Kaine's performance. I to ask, you real clear politics? The real clear Oh, I always, I, I always look at your website. Oh, thank you. Yes. Now, did you think Governor Pence did an adequate job of defending Donald Trump's uh, No, I, I didn't, because when you think of the challenges that were real, 
clear challenges that, uh, that was for you guys, you. the real clear challenges that uh, Tim Kaine put out there for Pence were, well, defend the fact that he hasn't put out his taxes, defend the fact that he hasn't paid his taxes, defend the fact that he has nearly a trillion, uh, nearly a billion dollars in debt on the tax return that we do have. And he wasn't able to defend that. Um, and I thought one of the most important moments was when Tim Kaine talked about the fact that he has a son in the military, as does Mike Pence. Um, but that he said, you know, one of the ways you so show your support is by being part of this country and paying your taxes that support the military. Um, and just time and time again, really maybe it's not his fault because it's so hard to defend, but Mike Pence wasn't able to defend that. And really, his job was a really difficult one, Pence's. He had to change the trajectory of the last week in which Donald Trump has been tweeting at 3 in the morning, in which he's, you know, when going after Miss Universe for an entire week, and that's a hard trajectory to change. And I don't I don't think he changed that. We were back on the same topics. I talked with Kellyanne uh, Conway, Trump's campaign manager, earlier, and she said that she thought Senator Kane was very rude to the female mm. moderator with his interrupting. Oh, I think the female moderator, um, Elaine, could handle herself. I think she did a good job. I think she was strong. And I think the difference with this debate, which maybe people didn't expect, was that this was a discussion, right? A conversation. When you have a conversation, at least when I have conversations, especially in the Iron Range, Minnesota, people interrupt each other sometimes. Pence interrupted Kane. Kane interrupted Pence. And maybe you'll find, I don't know what the numbers are of who interrupted the most. But the point was it was a discussion. And she went from topic to topic, got through the topic. Um, it was really quite a substantive debate. Um, and I commend her for the job that she did. And Republican Rep Mike Pompeo of Kansas was there to defend Mike Pence. Oh, I thought Governor Pence did a, Pence did a fantastic job tonight uh, and expressed a clear vision for how America needs to change uh, from what we've suffered through for the last seven and a half years. I think it, I think it also demonstrated the great choice that uh, Mr. Trump made in picking Governor Pence to be his vice president. I think you saw a team tonight uh, that has demonstrated real leadership and will take America in a completely different direction that will be good for every Kansan who I represent and everyone all across America. Do you think he adequately defended Mr. Trump against some of the charges Mr. Kane brought up? Oh, more than that. I think he more than adequately defended uh, Mr. Trump. But frankly, more than defending uh, Mr. Trump, what he was articulating was a vision that he and Mr. Trump have for what America needs to do, how America needs to change after seven and a half years where there aren't jobs, where America is more at risk. Uh, those things I think Governor Pence articulated incredibly well, and I'm I'm confident that Mr. Trump will do the same a week from now. What's your reaction to the Clinton campaign continuing to evoke Ronald Reagan as a means of denouncing Trump? Yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I wish that Secretary Clinton had an ounce of the trustworthiness of Ronald Reagan. But how can, how can you say that, that Pence uh, did a good job of defending Trump versus just changing the subject? Because he changed the subject a lot when something came up that was controversial. What he spoke to were the things that Americans in Kansas care about. You're right, he didn't chase the rabbit holes that the uh, left-wing media wants him to run down. What he talked about were the things that people like I represent in Kansas care about. He talked about how do you grow an economy. We haven't had 3% GDP growth once during President Barack Obama. That's the first time ever for a two-term president not to have that kind of economic growth. Today, around the world, we are mocked and laughed at. And he talked about how we're going to prevent that and how we're going to keep America safe from terrorism. I mean, Senator Kane tried to convince the American people tonight that somehow terrorism is not the threat it was when Barack Obama came into office. Just ask the people of New York or New Jersey or San Bernardino or Orlando or Nice, France. The list is endless. The threat from terrorism to date is far worse. And Senator Kane tried to tell the American people, uh, let's see, I'll be polite, a fib. But what do you make of Governor Pence pivoting so many times? 
away was, from difficult he was, questions. He was talking about the things real people care about that matter, that presidents and vice presidents and leaders do. That's the things he came here tonight to talk about. I think he did a fantastic job in achieving that. Finally, all eyes turn toward the next debate, which takes place on Sunday, October 9th, between Clinton and Trump at Washington University in St. Louis. It will be a town hall style format, and each campaign thinks their candidate will be best prepared. You'll hear first from Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook, and then from Trump spokesman Jason Miller. Robbie, so you're obviously hitting Donald Trump pretty hard on the tax issue after the New York Times report. Do you have any evidence that, that, that that's moving numbers in, in middle America, that, that average voters really care about that issue? Yeah, look, it undermines Donald Trump's central premise. First of all, that he's presenting some sort of change in this election and that he is somehow going to unrig the system for everyday people. And this what we've learned about his tax or his lack of paying taxes is that he not only is taking advantage of this so-called rig system, those are her, uh, his words, but that he thinks that's smart. Um, and I think to any working person who, you know, we all get those taxes taken right out of our paycheck, the idea that a billionaire can lose money, his businesses can fail and that he is then rewarded for that by writing that off uh, for 20 years, or almost 20 years, uh, that's what voters object to. Uh, it's similar to uh, in the last debate, he talked so much about trade and how he's going to be a champion for keeping jobs here in America, when it was Donald Trump's choice about where to produce his suits, his ties, his furniture, he outsourced those jobs overseas, in fact, to 12 different countries. So once again, we hear him say one thing, but he's in fact uh, doing another, and he won't present any change at all. His tax plan actually makes these sorts of deductions worse and stacks the deck even more against everyday people. We know that's the argument, but is there any evidence that it's moving numbers? Absolutely, I mean, we, we're seeing people, you know, we're, we're talking to people at the door every day, they're, they're angry about this, they're absolutely angry about this. And what are you guys doing to prepare for the next debate? There'll be plenty of preparation. Um, and um, I think one of the key takeaways from tonight is that ideas matter. And so the ideas uh, that Governor Pence uh, put forward and that Mr. Trump has been putting forward on the campaign trail uh, are ultimately um, our winners. And it shows why our grassroots movement is doing so well. It shows why there's so, so much energy and enthusiasm. And despite $250 million uh, being rained down on, on Mr. Trump's head, why we're still neck and neck and even in a number of the national polls, why we're still leading. So I think that gives some indication to it. But Mr. Trump will be ready. Uh, you know, tonight's a, tonight's a, a, a very energetic um, shot in the arm uh, for the team. Uh, you know, Governor Pence was flawless. Um, shows that ideas matter. And like I said, it shows the good judgment uh, Mr. Trump has to select someone who's so strong as a number two. Um, and it shows that Mr. Trump will select other people of Governor Pence's caliber for all the other positions uh, in government. And finally, James Arkin asks Andrew Bowman to help translate recent polling data about younger voters who may or may not decide to participate in this history-making presidential contest. So this is James Arkin with Real Clear Politics. I'm speaking with Andrew Bauman, the Senior Vice President at Global Strategy Group and a Democratic pollster. And uh, Andrew has done some polling on millennial voters this year. So we're going to talk a little bit about what he's, uh, what he's come up with. Andrew, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. 
Um, so can you give me just sort of a, a brief explanation of uh, the polling that you've done on, on millennial voters in, in Battlegrounds this year and, and what sort of the big picture headlines that, that you've seen from those numbers? Sure thing. So we've been doing some work for Next Gen Climate Action, which is, of course, supportive of Secretary Clinton. Um, and we've been doing a, a tracking poll in 11 battleground states of millennial voters. So we've done two surveys of about um, 1,650 uh, millennial voters, about 150 per state in the 11 battleground states. Uh, they're the ones that you, you might guess are the ones where the presidential race is being fought. Um, and we did our first one in uh, early July before the conventions. We did our second one uh, in late August. And, and we just actually went into the field with our third one um, uh, a day or two ago. We don't have data back from that one. But the, uh, the idea is to, you know, to, uh, this is, I believe, the only battleground-specific, um, millennial-specific survey and the idea was to really get a, a very accurate and precise read of, of, of uh, how millennials stand and how they how they move over the course of the election. So that's the the polling we've done. And the big picture uh, headlines. Let me go back to the first poll and then sort of talk about where they started and how they've changed. The the big picture headline has been all along. First of all, that uh, this is a group of voters that really disdain Donald Trump. We found that about 75% of millennials. Uh, believe Donald Trump is a racist. They believe he's a sexist. About 70% say they would be ashamed of the country if the U.S. elected him. Um, so this is not a group that is ever really going to break for Donald Trump in any kind of um, you know strong measure. You know his ceiling with this group is about a quarter of, of millennials. The question the question has always been, will they vote for Secretary Clinton or will they stay home or vote for third party? Um, so as you probably know, uh, Barack Obama got about 66% of this group in 2008 and 60% uh, in, in um, 2012. Um, in our first survey, Hillary Clinton um, was getting about 43% of likely voting millennials um, because, and, and so well below um, President Obama's uh, uh, 2012 number. And that's because um, Johnson and Stein were getting a, a pretty big, um, pretty sizable chunk of voters. And one of the interesting things that we've been doing in this survey is we've also been asking a hypothetical horse race as if Bernie Sanders were the nominee. Saying if Bernie Sanders were the nominee in the candidates for Sanders, Trump, Stein, and Johnson, how would you vote? And what we found in that first survey was Sanders was getting getting 60% of likely voters, and, and Secretary Clinton was well behind that. Um, and one of the big reasons was there was a big chunk of voters, and particularly um, among the Sanders holdouts, as we call them, those people voting for Sanders but not for Clinton, that said that there was no real differences on the issues that mattered most um, between Trump and Clinton. So, in fact, uh, in that first survey, 20% of millennials were the Sanders holdouts. That is, that they would vote for Bernie Sanders but not for Hillary uh, Clinton. And that was obviously a big, a big problem. You know, this is a group where Secretary Clinton really wants to run a the score to counter um, Trump's, uh, you know, strength with with older voters. Um, and what we so what we've seen since then, you know, in our um, first survey uh, or second survey in August, and what some of the public polls have been suggesting even more since then is that um, this has been moving at least a little bit. You know, it was very clear coming out of our first survey that this is a big challenge for Clinton, something she needed to address, um, and something she clearly has been trying to address. You know, campaigning with Bernie Sanders, talking about climate change in the debate. Um, but in our, so in our second survey, that number that it started out at 20% dropped to 15%. So 15% of millennials were standard holdouts, and Clinton's overall number had gone up by 5 points to 48%. So still not where 
she needed to be, but moving on the right track. And several public surveys taken since the debate have indicated that you know, support for third-party candidates among millennials has started to decrease even further and to Secretary Clinton's benefit. So we should have new data in a week or so, um, hopefully from our perspective, confirming that, but uh, either confirming or, de- or denying it. But it does seem like there is things that millennials are sort of moving in, our fa- in her favor. The question is just how much will they move and, and will it be enough? So you, you talked about the, the difference between your first survey in July and the survey in August and how there, was, there were some gains uh, that Secretary Clinton was able to make. Um, t- to what do you attribute those gains? Was it that uh, the convention happened and uh, the party sort of consolidated a little bit. Was it any sort of message that you saw from Secretary Clinton that might have resonated with these young voters? How was she able to kind of bring some more of them on board in, in that month or so? Right. I think it's all of the above. Um, I mean, I think the convention definitely helped. There's no doubt about that. You had Bernie Sanders get up there and you know, give an impassioned endorsement of Secretary Clinton. You know, by, by almost all accounts, the the convention was a success, um, you, and you had her, you know, sort of putting out this contrasting worldview of, of her her worldview of a very diverse, um, uh, you know, uh, the idea that we're stronger together versus the Donald Trump worldview that is very divisive, um, you know, plays one group against each other, and that's you know that's a contrast that really resonates with millennials more than any group. So I certainly think that helps, but I think you also had Secretary Clinton really starting to really make an effort to appeal to these voters on uh, a policy perspective. Um, so I mentioned before, you know, in our first poll, we found that, that 36% of millennials and that 37% of millennials that would support Sanders in a hypothetical matchup agreed with the statement that there is no real difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump on the issues that matter uh, most to you. By August, that number among Sanders voters, uh, potential Sanders voters, had dropped by 12 points, which is basically the exact same amount that, that Hillary's support went up against uh, amongst um, uh, you know, people that would vote for Sanders. So I think part of this is she got out there, she's talking about things like college affordability, climate, and you know, some of her allies were doing the same thing and starting to educate um, some of these millennials that really didn't have an understanding of how you know, she and Trump were different on the issues. So I, I think it's both of those things. And so, I mean, we, we talk about where things stand right now, and obviously Senator Sanders has been out on the trail a little bit more, um, did an event with Secretary Clinton, and then did a couple of events last week, is doing a bunch more this week. As, as he starts to, to campaign on college campuses and other places around the country more and more over the, the next couple of weeks, do you expect those numbers to, to shift even more? Do you expect that, um, that Senator Sanders is going to be able to convince his voters even more that uh, there is a significant difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I, I certainly can't can't hurt. Um, I think it will have will definitely help. I mean, I think more than anything, actually, the debate and the aftermath um, is probably what's going to move voters, particularly millennials, uh, more than anything, um, more than, than than Sanders on the stump. But I certainly think it'll help. Um, you know, they, these voters still rate Sanders very very highly. Um, but, you know, it's not easy for them to just flip a switch on, you know, on this. That, you know, Sanders for almost a year, um, you know, in, in the primary campaign really sort of took it to Secretary Clinton. And for, for a lot of these voters, particularly the younger ones, you know, that was their introduction to, to, to Hillary Clinton. You know, they don't really remember her um, from the 90s or really know her very well from her tenure as Secretary of State. Their introduction to her was through the prism of being Sanders supporters. And, you know, for a year they, they heard, um, you know, a lot of criticism of Secretary Sanders. And then there was, of course, a lot of talk about how the 
the DNC was unfair to her and, and the election, the primary election was rigged. And, and obviously, Secretary Sanders or Senator Sanders has been very good to come out and say, of course, no, no, that's not the case. Um, but, you know, that's, that still lingers. Um, so it's not, you know, it, it, what he is doing is certainly very helpful and is, is necessary. Um, but it's, it's going to take more than him just showing up once or twice um, to convince some of these voters. So I think, you know, what, what Secretary Clinton needs, and she needs that, you know, she needed the performance she had in the debate and to continue that. And she needs to also, you know, continue her and her allies sort of just getting out that drumbeat as much as possible, um, that on the issues that matter most, you know, that, that, that she's with these voters and, and, and she, her positions are, are in tune with them. And not only is or Donald Trump's not, but Gary Johnson's is not. And uh, Jill Stein, you know, is really, you know, that, that, that a protest vote for Jill Stein, is, as, as, as Senator Sanders has said, um, you know, is, is sort of throwing away your vote. And, and, and this election would only help Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that we always you know, talk about when we talk about millennial voters, uh, excuse me, when we talk about third party voters is sort of the protest vote. Um, and obviously a big theme in this election has been the unfavorability of both candidates. Uh, people don't seem to like Secretary Clinton. They don't seem to like Donald Trump. Uh, obviously, as you've said, that's that's particularly true of millennial voters. Um, do do third party voters and, and millennial voters typically, um, you know, are, are they are the polling numbers for third party voters typically higher and then drop as we get closer to election and the choice becomes a little more uh, clear to to some voters who may be considering a protest vote and do you expect that to have any effect as you know the the country at large starts paying a, a lot more attention to the election down in the final couple of weeks that is traditionally what happens um, and it has not happened as quickly this cycle but it appears to be happening now um, in, in most of the Maybe even in just in the last week, we really started to see this. We started to see Johnson and Stein's numbers um, dropping in a lot of public polls and, and private polls. Um, you know, I still I think in the end that both uh, overall and with millennials, they are likely to get a larger share of votes than third party voters tend to. Um, but I don't think they're going to get, you know, some of the margins that have been talked about, particularly among millennials. Now, you said some, um, you know, public polls out there tell that, that uh, you know, Johnson and Stein were getting a combined vote. I remember seeing a Quinnipiac poll suggesting that um, two or three weeks ago, and that's quite frankly ludicrous. Um, but, you know, they will take what you said is right. I mean, that's the issue for Secretary Clinton with this group is this, this group hates Donald Trump, but they're hesitant about um, Secretary Clinton, too, and her numbers are not great with them either. Um, and that's what's driving, you know, her issue with third-party voters. And that's what makes this inter- this election a little different among millennials than previous ones. And previous ones, at this point, it'll be all about turnout for the Democrat. It will be about just making sure millennials come out to vote because they're you know, significantly less likely to. That's still an por- important issue, but the, the line between turnout and persuasion among millennials is really blurred because it's not only getting them to come out to vote, but it's making sure that these progressive millennials vote for Secretary Clinton um, and not just Stein and Johnson. And I do think you're seeing that, you know, that this, this as voters in general, but particularly millennials, as they tune in more, uh, I do think you are going to, and we'll continue to see um, numbers for the third party candidates drop. Um, but I do think it's going to be above traditional levels. And that's, you know, and that's a big goal for Hillary Clinton to, to get that, those third party numbers down as close to sort of as traditional as possible with this group um, in her favor. Uh, I mean, that could be the difference between winning or losing a state like North Carolina or Florida. So we've talked a lot about this election and about millennial voters, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. Uh, I want to ask you to look forward a little bit, look into the crystal ball a little bit. Um, we, we hear 
uh, every election cycle about how young voters don't come to the polls in the numbers that older voters do and uh, you know how problematic it is in, in terms of youth participation in, in the political process. Um, you know, we know how younger voters feel about these candidates and feel about this election cycle in particular. Uh, going forward, do you think that this election cycle and, and this focus uh, on millennial voters will uh, will get more millennial voters to want to be involved in the political process? Will they be more turned off by the political process? Or is it hard to sort of prognosticate what uh, what sort of changes millennial voters will feel uh, just given, you know, how, uh, how they've uh, been looked at? in 2016. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's on that front, it's, it's pretty much speculation. I mean, it, it, it definitely, this election, it seems like it would be likely to turn off voters, um, more than it would turn them on. I mean, this is, you know, not an election like the last two where they really liked one of their choices in, in, uh, Barack Obama. This is an election where they load one and they're, you know, lukewarm on the other. Um, you know, I, I don't think that that means that this is a generation that's just going to turn out of politics forever because of that. Um, you may see a little bit less engagement over time from them um, than you see with other groups. But, I mean, I think, you know, much, much like other generations, as they grow older, they will grow um, more involved. And, and I don't think there's going to be a big change there. Um, what I think is the bigger long-term question is, is this a group of voters that's just going to be – turned off from the Republican Party for the rest of their lives. So I mean, the political science research suggests that, you know, as a generation, you know, how you vote, how you sort of are socialized around voting, that does not change a lot over the course of your life. Obviously, it can. And for some people, it can change dramatically. But as sort of as, as a group, it doesn't change a whole lot. And, you know, the, the millennials that are especially the, the youngest ones that are voting for the first time this cycle, they don't love um, Hillary Clinton. But, you know, we see it in our polling they, you know, they give the Democratic Party pretty good ratings. They, 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 they really like Barack Obama. They really like Bernie Sanders, you know, who are both Democrats now. So, that, you know, I don't think there's any long-term damage to the Democratic brand. But that, that's not the case for the Republicans. I mean, they, you know, they've never been around for an election with a quote-unquote real Republican. Um, this is their first election, and, and their, their first view of the Republican Party is this person that they think is an, a racist, sexist, bigot, um, and you've got, for the general, for the most part, you know, the Republican Party backing it. You've got very few, you know, establishment Republicans having the, the courage to come out uh, and, and uh, take them on. We saw what happened Kelly yesterday saying that, you know, he's, should, he's absolutely a role model for children and only walking that back, you know, when it was very clear that that was a mistake. So, you know, I think, I think the millennial generation was already going to be a problem for the Republican Party moving forward unless they change some of their views around immigration, around climate change, things like that. Um, but, you know, this is, this is a real problem for them long term um, that, that, you know, that, that this group of voters is going to think about Republicans and they're going to think about Donald Trump. All right. Great. Well, Andrew Bauman, uh, Senior Vice President at Global Strategy Group and a Democratic pollster talking about millennial voters. Thanks so much for uh, talking with me today. No problem. I enjoyed it.